0: continuing our study here through the book of Revelation. We spent a few weeks on the seven churches in Revelations 2 through 3. And so uh, chapter 4 here gets into our next phase. If you remember correctly, uh, the outline for the book of Revelation comes from Revelation 1, verse 19. It says, Write these things which you have seen, which are chapters 1. Write these things which are, which are chapters 2 and 3. And the things that will take place after this... Chapters four on so we're finally starting to get into this prophetic element here in the book of Revelation that we all know So well now it's not until chapter six do you start getting into the judgment aspect of Revelation that we think of Chapters four and five kind of set the heavenly scene if you will and what's going on now We've gone over this before with the book of Revelation Especially once you get into chapter four and on there's a lot of symbolism a lot of symbolism And you can look at this a couple different ways you can look at it literally as meaning what it's saying and there's some times where we will do that, and there's other times where I believe there's a deeper symbolic meaning, and I'll try to bring out those points. Now, it's nothing to worth getting into a debate over. Sometimes people get into these arguments, oh, I really think it's symbolic of this, I really think it's symbolic of that. If you want to think it's symbolic of that, that's fine. As long as it's not unbiblical, I don't have a problem with that. I know I'm right, I know you're wrong. I really can move forward with that. But. There's certain things we're not going to necessarily agree 100% on, and there's going to run into a couple things like that tonight, and I'll show you that when we get to that. It doesn't make a difference here on the foundational truths of Jesus. I want to make sure you know that. There are just different ways to interpret it, and too many times you see in the Bible people arguing over little interpretations. It's like, you know what, okay, you think it's symbolic of that, we can move on. So we'll get to that as we get to this tonight. So we're going to try to do all of chapter 4, 11 verses, and then next week we'll try to do chapter 5. Please save your papers as best as possible. Chapter 5 is on the back of the sheets that we gave you there. So, with this being said, let's jump right into this, verse 1. Remember, chapter 4, you can start by just these first phrases, after these things. Now we're into a new element. The church age is over, if you want to look at that perspective. Chapters 2 and 3, where John's speaking to the churches, and we talked about how those are also messages to us as a church. Well, now we're past the church age. Some people look at this and they say they believe the rapture happens right around that verse 1. Is after these things. And look at why they think that. Look at verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice who I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you these things which must take place after this. A lot of good Bible scholars believe verse 1 is a picture of the rapture there. This idea of come up here, and I will show you these things which must take place. And you can look in those notes I gave you there. We put that reference down to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. And I'll just read that to you real quick and just as you're re if i'm reading that verse look once again at verse 1 of revelation 4 and look at the similarities here it says in first thessalonians 4 16 for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and thus we shall be always with the lord look at those phrases in verse 16 that idea of the shout the voice of an archangel the trumpet of God well what do you see here in verse 4 excuse me chapter 4, verse 1, do you see that trumpet speaking, saying, come up here? So I think that's a pretty neat picture there, that that could be the rapture of the church. Now, if you remember correctly, those sheets are back there on the back table that we handed out in week 1 in case you didn't get a copy. The rapture of the church, just a quick reminder, is where the Lord takes the believers out. It's different than the second coming. The second coming of Christ does not happen until Revelation 19. The second coming of Christ, where Christ actually returns and literally sets foot on the earth, and returns and sets up his rule and reign. Second coming in Revelation 19. The rapture is where believers are taken out of the world and we're taken home to heaven. That rapture, the Lord meets us in the air like we just read there in 1 Thessalonians 4, and the rapture is the beginning point now for the rest of the book of Revelation. One commentary I read had a really neat point. They said that the word church, is mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation. It's not mentioned once after Revelation 4. Because why? Because the church age is done. The church is now in heaven because we've been raptured out. Kind of a neat little picture there. Take it or leave it. But there's some really neat symbolism there in verse 1 of this idea of being taken out. You see that trumpet come up here. Revelation 4, 1 looks like to be a little symbolic picture of the rapture happening, which would then take us into these prophetic elements that we're going to see. Let's see what happens next in verse 2. It says, Immediately I, meaning John, was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. One sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne an appearance like an emerald. Now this symbolism is important because a lot of times people are reading stuff like this and they say, why is God going through all these details? I had one guy ask me one time, he goes, what's the big deal with the color thing? Because God is always talking about color. Always talking about colors here in the book of Revelation. See, this is what I personally think. I personally think that when we see something down here on earth that we think is beautiful, be it the leaves changing color, maybe if you've been out west and you've seen some of those amazing landscape scenes through the Rockies, we sit there in awe and say, wow. I think sometimes God just chuckles in heaven and says, you think that's good? Oh, this is a cursed, fallen world, and you think that's good? Just wait till you get up to heaven. And I think these colors can't do it justice. Because I've seen people try to paint a picture like this and it looks like a really bad paint by numbers. I mean, it really does. And I'm not picking on the artist. Because you really can't put this in perspective. And these colors, I think, are going to be the most amazing bright colors here. Because in a little bit, we're going to see them saying like they're walking on this sea of glass. Well, that doesn't sound that cool. Well, I would think when you see this sea of glass and this idea of this brilliance and this shining, we just can't put it in perspective of what it's going to look like. But these colors mean something. If you want to further study, I encourage you to do this tonight. Because in Exodus chapter 28, you can see the notes right there. The chief priest, the priest wore this uh, breastplate, and on this breastplate had different colored stones, and these stones all symbolized a different tribe. Well, the two stones that are picked here, which you see there in verse 3, the jasper and the sardis, wouldn't you know it, those are the first and the last stones mentioned. Now, I'm not trying to put two and two together here, but I think there's a reason why God mentions the first and the last stones. What have we talked about back in Revelation 1? Jesus is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. If you remember back from our study in Revelation 1, we said it's so vital, him being the first and the last, because if you know the beginning and you know the end, what did we say? The middle doesn't matter. The middle doesn't matter at all. If you know how it starts and you know how it ends, you don't have to worry about the middle. I've shared this example with you countless times. Forgive me for the repetition. But if I'm going to watch a movie, I get online and see how the movie ends. I'm not going to waste my time watching a movie if it doesn't end in a way that I want to see. So once I know that the movie ends well, I'll waste my time in the middle to get to the end. Well, same thing here spiritually. I know how it ends. We win. I get to go to heaven. So since I know the beginning, the Sardis, and I know the last, the Jasper, I don't have to worry about what happens in the middle. So when you have a bad day at work tomorrow, you can really stop and say, you know what, Hi, I know how this all ends. I get to go to heaven. Next time you're having a really rough day and you're not feeling that good physically, you can sit there and say, wait a second, I know how this all ends. I get to go to heaven. I don't have to worry about it. So I think it's important that you see the symbolism of the Sardis and the Jasper, too often we just read that and move on. Same thing there in verse 3, this idea of the rainbow. The rainbow goes all the way back to Genesis 9, and the rainbow was there after the flood, and that rainbow shows God's faithfulness. Now, you can take it one of two ways. I'm in a good mood tonight. So when I think of the rainbow, I think of God's faithfulness, and I think of his blessing of getting Noah through the flood. Well, some people look at the rainbow, and what do they think of? Judgment. That's not a fun thing to think about. I don't want to think about that. But isn't that true? When did the rainbow come? The rainbow came because of judgment was on the earth, the flood. The flood was over, but the rainbow still represented God's judgment was complete. Well, what are we getting into in Revelation 4? In just two short chapters in Revelation 6, the sealed judgments are opened. That rainbow also shows God's faithfulness, but it also is a symbolism of judgment too. We're getting ready to judge here. In a few short verses, we're going to talk about thunders and lightnings. That's usually not a good thing when it's coming from God. Chapters 4 and 5 are setting us up for judgment that's going to come in Revelation 6. Not us, but the world. So in the first few verses here, you, I think you have a, uh, a, a reference there to the rapture in verse 1. and ver- chapter, excuse me, verses 2 and 3, you have some neat symbolism of Christ and God's faithfulness and judgment that really starts to set the heavenly scene. Do we have any quick questions, comments over the first three verses here? Yeah, Ryan. Yep, yep, thanks for jumping ahead. I was going to get to that in verse 6. Thanks for messing up a point. Anybody else want to mess the lesson up tonight? Just asking. Rav, you want to mess it up too? Go ahead. Yep. Yeah, right. Not on purpose. Well, no, come up here. This is for John. John is given this vision to know what was going on. It's not for us. It's not when we're going to get up there. No, we're not going to know what's going on down here on earth. This is a vision that was given to John so John then could relate to us what was going on. I just think it's a neat little reference to possibly the picture of the uh, rapture because the church age is done, chapters 2 and 3, from chapters 4 on the church is not mentioned and you see this idea of a trumpet, etc. It's just a neat little symbolic picture I think of the church getting a chance to go to heaven in the rapture. I don't think that phrase there of I will show you these things which must take place after this, I think that was given to John then to tell us. Yeah. Ron. Mm-hmm. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when we get to heaven, the rapture is going to be those that are alive, that are going to be taken up and taken to heaven, and then those that have already passed on in Christ will already be up there in heaven. There's no soul sleep. Yeah, Ryan. Well, here's the tough... Mm-hmm. Well, I, you see, and that's where I would disagree. I think it does come out in black and white. I think when you get into First and Second Thessalonians, I think it gets to be pretty black and white there. That's my personal opinion. And, you know, I'm trying to find these references real quick here, especially in the Thessalonians. Um, yes, yes. And that's the thing about the word rapture. The word rapture is actually the Latin word. And what it talks about here, but the, those will be taken up. Um, in First Thessalonians 4... Let me see if I can find right there. Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That phrase caught up is the English, and if I remember correctly in the Greek, it's harparzo, which means in the Latin, it's rapture. And so what happens is the word rapture is in the Bible. It's just the Latin phrase of the word caught up there in verse 17. This is what I've noticed about the teaching of the rapture, and I'm not trying to get into denominational battles tonight by any means. Depending on what denomination you were raised in depends on what you think about the rapture. There are certain denominations that just don't get into the concept and the teaching of the rapture. And what I've noticed over the years is depending on what denomination you came out of or you're in, the idea of the rapture is something you just never really were taught on or never really heard a lot about. Certain denominations seem to hit it a little bit more, a little bit more in times events. So I don't want to say it publicly, but if you and I were talking privately, I'd probably say, let me guess what denomination your friend goes to. And I'm willing to bet I could probably guess, but I'm not going to do it while we're recording the message right now, but I'll talk to you afterwards. Um, and I think it just depends on what church you were raised in. So when I see those phrases there, like in 1 Thessalonians, and we shall be caught up, my comment then is, well, what is that talking about? Or in 1 Corinthians 15, it says we should all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. I, I don't mean this e- egotistically, but what are we talking about there then? To me, those are references to something happen of the church being taken out and being raptured out. So... That's where it goes. But I've had people come up and say the word rapture is not in the Bible. And I say I agree. The rapture, the word rapture is not in the English translation of the Bible, but it's the Latin form of the word called up there in verse 17. And I will talk to you afterwards, Ryan, because I do want to guess what denomination. So, anybody else have anything here on the first three verses of four? Yeah, John. Yeah, yeah. That, that, would, that would be canceled after one episode. Yes. That, that was your only comment? Seriously. You wasted our time with that? Golly. I'm looking for something at least spiritually and edifying there out of this. All right, anybody else have something important? Marcus. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think you're right on both parts there because the, the passage that comes to mind is, first off, when Paul was taken up to heaven in Second Corinthians, he says, words cannot express what I saw. And, and so you got to think here for a second. I use this example all the time. Once again, forgive me for the repetition. If you have never seen the Grand Canyon, how do you explain the Grand Canyon to someone who's never seen it? If no one's ever seen an ocean, how do you explain the ocean? Or the best example is if someone is blind since birth, how do you explain colors to someone who's never seen? John is going up into heaven. That's a big deal. Deal. John is trying to describe undescribable heaven in, in, in words. That's, that's very, very difficult to do. God is inexpressible, the Bible says. And also what you're saying there too, I do believe some of the symbolism goes back to what Christ said about parables. You know, the people came to Jesus and said, why do you talk in parables? And Jesus' response is, I talk in parables because this is highly translated here. He goes, it weeds out the real from the fake. He goes, those that want to know it and get it will put the time and effort in the parables and study out and find it. Those that don't care will say, I don't get it, I'm moving on. Same thing with the symbolism in Revelation. It's really easy to read the symbolism and say, you know what, I don't even anything about this jasper. I don't want anything about this sardis stone. I don't anything about the rainbow. This is stupid. I'm moving on. But It's not stupid. Stop. Chew on this. There are some amazing things in here. And this symbolism is the, one of the ways that God expresses his nature to us. But my big thing is you can't describe God. You can't describe heaven. If God was so easy to describe, if heaven was so easy to describe, it wouldn't be worthy of our praise. And so heaven is an indescribable place, and John here, through the limits of our human language, is trying to describe God in heaven. It's a tough thing to do, and I think Marcus had a good point there. Anybody else have anything here on these first few verses before we move on? Okay, so we set the heavenly scene, a little bit of description. Let's see who the 24 elders are. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders, sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold, on their heads now we're going to stop there real quick because we need to know who are the 24 elders now this is one of those examples of it it's really not worth fighting about i know people that believe the 24 elders represents the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of israel not literally but it represents the church age and the israel coming together as one because once we get to heaven israel and the church are now united together ultimately for all of eternity I got to admit, I kind of like that. I think that's why I put that that Revelation 21, 12 through 14 reference down because in the future it talks about the 24 pillars. And it comes right on and says that the 24 pillars represent the 12 and the 12, Israel and the church coming together as one. Some people really don't like that idea because they say, well, if chapter 4 is about the church, well, we shouldn't be talking about Israel just yet. And, you know, and I think they're kind of splitting hairs there a little bit because look at the description here. These people are wearing white robes. Generally speaking, when someone's wearing a white robe in the Bible, what does that show? Redeemed. Righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. So we know we're probably talking about humans not angelic beings or something like that even though angels are known to wear white in the Bible but look at the next phrase they have crowns Well, we know who gets the crowns we get the crowns angels don't get the crowns so I think we're dealing here with a representation that represents the redeemed those that have been saved that are now up in heaven and just for a quick study there, mentioning the crowns I put all the different crowns there in the Bible there's a crown of rejoicing a crown of righteousness a crown of life and a crown of glory I encourage you to go do a further study on that because you want to know what you're wearing when you get up to heaven. Now, I know somebody's probably thinking at this time, well, I don't care about crowns. I'm just going to be happy to get up there in heaven. you are going to care about crowns when you get up there to heaven. And I'll tell you why you're going to care about crowns here in just a little bit. So I believe these 24 elders represent a combination, my personal opinion take it or leave it, of uh, the Israel and the church coming together, united together there. We are redeemed in Christ. We have these crowns. And so what's going on with these crowns here? Verse 5 and it says, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle four living creatures each had six wings were full of eyes around within and they do not rest day or night saying holy 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 lord god almighty who was and is and is so here's a picture of the heavenly scene going on let's break this down verse five thunders and lightnings thunders and lightnings are pretty impressive anybody that's ever had a dog that got scared with a thunderstorm knows what the power is anybody that's ever had kids that knows what thunder and lightning does it kind of scares them well Revelation 8 verse uh, 5 actually talks about a bowl of judgment that's thunder and lightning. When you start to see thunders and lightnings in the Bible, you're seeing the power of God. Remember when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law, there was the thunders and the lightnings. Well, here in Revelation, thunder and lightning usually represents judgment. You have to remember the purpose of Revelation 4 and 5 is a build-up to Revelation 6 of when judgment is coming. The earth is going to be judged for its sin. So these thunders and lightning seem to be a reference to judgment there, Revelation 8, 5. We've already talked about the seven lamps of fire, what those were. We talked about those back in Revelation 1, 2, and 3. And those seven lamps represent uh, God's light and His witness through the church. Now, the seven spirits of God, we've covered that before, too. Just a quick reference, Isaiah 11.2. The seven spirits of God represents the uh, holiness of God and his ministry. I'm um, just going to share that passage with you real quick because it's been a couple weeks since we hit that one. I don't want you guys to feel I'm just skipping over some of the stuff as we kind of build through this. Isaiah eleven two, 2, it goes on here and it says right here, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's Isaiah eleven two. 2. If you add all those up, you have seven spirits. So what a lot of people, the seven spirits of God represents there, the Messiah, Christ, and the fullness of serving God there. And that reference, once again, is Isaiah 11, verse 2. So you have this heavenly scene. And in the middle of this heavenly scene, you have the four living creatures. Here's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. You could get up to heaven, I could get up in heaven, and these four living creatures could look exactly the way they're described. They could truly be covered in eyes in front and back. They could really have faces of a lion, a calf, a man and an eagle. They could have six wings. They could have all of this. That's how they really could look. And I'm not going to put God in a box. I've seen some funky people in life. And so you know what? If, there's people, if that's what God wants to have up there in heaven, that's what God can have up there in heaven. Now, I believe there is some symbolism in the way that those things are described. I believe the full of eyes represents the knowledge and wisdom of God and the alertness of God. We talk about that phrase, somebody has eyes in the back of their head. What does that mean, that they know what's going on? Well, if they're completely covered in eyes front and back, what's it show? God knows what's going on. Well, what's the different faces represent? And you can look at these different faces, and I put a little uh, chart down here at the bottom so you can look at this. When you look in the Bible, lion, king, calf, servant, man, human, eagle, God, which is a really nice way to describe Jesus as a king, servant, human, God, which is a really neat way to describe how he's described in all the different Gospels. And it's also a pretty neat way of some symbolism there. You think of a lion, you think of something powerful. When you think of a calf, you think of a servant out there working. When you think of man, he's intelligent. And when you think of the eagle, you think of swiftness or honor or glory flying majestically up in the sky. Now, once again, as you come up to me tonight and you say, James, I really think they're going to have eyes all over, six wings in the faces. I don't have a problem with that. I really honestly don't. You're going to hear me say this a lot in the book of Revelation. I don't know. When I get up to heaven, we'll look at each other and say, yeah, they really do look that way. We may get up to heaven and say, boy, it was symbolic. I don't know. And I don't have a problem with that. That's part of the fun. It's like having your Christmas present and shaking it. I don't know what's in it, but we're going to find out when we get there. And so what you have here is this neat symbolism of I think it could represent stuff. And if you want to further study, write this down, Ezekiel chapter 1, because it's really neat in Ezekiel chapter 1, which Ryan so eloquently mentioned there a few minutes ago to steal my thunder. Ezekiel chapter 1 also describes a heavenly scene here. And Ezekiel chapter 1 is describing cherubim. Cherubim are certain angelic beings that were created, and these cherubim, their job is they kind of, if you will, protect the glory of God. And those six wings, those six wings do different things there in Ezekiel chapter 1 of covering their faces, covering their feet, etc. And you can study that out in Ezekiel chapter 1. So a lot of people believe these four living creatures are a picture of the deity of God, not God himself, but the picture of God, and that they're actually cherubim. Now, we talk about this a lot that, you know, the Bible mentions different type of angels. as the cherubim, the seraphim, etc. cetera. And so often when you think of cherubim and seraphim, you think of the chubby little babies, et cetera, that you see on the calendars. That's not what at all what the Bible describes them as. If you want a neat description of what cherubim looked like, go to Ezekiel chapter 1 tonight and study that out, and you'll see a very similar picture here to what we just studied in Revelation chapter 4. And I think that these pictures of the different faces and the eyes and the wings do all have a symbolic meaning of how it represents. God and His holiness, but it also could really be their literal description of what these beings look like. We don't know 100% for sure. So, check that out tonight in Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, before we get to uh, the worship part of this in verse 8 and on, does anybody have any quick questions, comments of what we covered here so far about the cherubim or the 24 elders, etc.? Ryan? Oh, you know, I, I think in some ways, if you look from the biblical standpoint, and I know this doesn't line up with evolutionary thought, but from the biblical standpoint, God's made it very clear from Genesis' revelation, man is created above the animals. you know. And so to me, I guess when you say one of them doesn't belong, I agree it's kind of like the Sesame Street, you know, which one we could sing the song there. But the point is you know, man was created above the animals, and so there is that element of, I, I look at it as the intelligence aspect. You know, and I do believe that the Bible does use symbolism of animals to represent, but, you know, really when it comes to wisdom, it's the intelligence of man, because God said man was created in our image. But you bring up a good point there. Anybody else got anything they want to say before we move on? Okay, well, let's see what happens. We've already talked about how they don't stop the praise and worship there in verse 8, verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. Stop right there. That's why you want crowns. You don't want crowns to walk around for all of eternity saying, look at me. You want crowns because what do you do with your crowns? You give them back to God. See, that's the point of a crown. The crown is not for you to walk around for all of eternity saying, look what I did down on earth and I want everybody to kiss up to me for all of eternity. That's not what it is. The purpose of the crown is that when you worship the Lord, you put the crown back to Him, you say, Lord, it's not me, it's you. No, 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 not me, it's you. You, Lord, it's all you. And so this crown goes to you. It's all about you. So the crowns are presented to us for us to give back to the Lord to say, Lord, it's all you. Once again, every now and then I run into somebody, it's like, "Oh, I'm not worrying about rewards. I am worrying about rewards. I'm not worrying about rewards for my sake but i don't want to be in heaven empty-handed i want to be able to say lord it's yours here take this take this this is this is my service to you it's my worship to you so they cast their crowns before the throne saying you are worthy our lord to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created a couple closing points here on revelation 4 First one, notice how many times the word throne or thrones is mentioned. Because it's all about God being on the throne. Every now and then we'll say in the lesson of who's on the throne of your life. You have to decide who's on the throne. Who's ever on your throne is what and who you're going to worship. So God being on the throne represents he's the only one worthy of worship. Well, other people put things on their thrones. I've seen people put work on their thrones, put money on their throne, put their spouse, their kids, their pride, their prestige, their health. They put all their other things on the throne. Well, that's what their life circles around. Whatever you put on your throne, you're going to have your life circle around. That's just the fact of it. So if you put God on the throne, that's what your life revolves around. So this is constantly repeated here in chapter 4 of he's on the throne and we worship him before the throne and we bow down to the throne. Because it's all about making sure God gets the glory, which I love this point here, and I've never seen this point before. And I I read a book about this recently, so give credit where credit's due. It's not mine. But check this out. We start out in Revelation 4 with four people worshiping the Lord, the four living creatures. By the end of Revelation 4, it's the four living creatures worshiping the Lord and then now the 24 elders. Well, now you jump ahead to Revelation 5, verse 11, and you have an innumerable amount of angels now worshiping the Lord. Then we build to one more in verse 13. Every creature which is in heaven on the earth and under the earth, now they're worshiping the Lord. Isn't that neat how that builds? you got the four living creatures, then you got the 24 elders, and then you got an innumerable amount of angels... And then you got every created being now worshiping the Lord. That's that's the cool part about it. See, here's the problem with worship. We think worship's about us. See, we, we think worship's about us. Ah, I didn't really like the way they played that song. Oh, I'm not a big fan of that song. Oh, they do it differently on the radio. Oh, it was a little too loud. Oh, it was a little too slow. It's a little too fast. It's not about you. That's not about you in any way whatsoever. Worship is about God on the throne in heaven. And so what you see here in Revelation 4 and 5, you see this chorus of worship building. all of eternity. Because it's all about Him. Too often we allow worship to be about us. What we like, what we want, and how it's presented, etc. Where God says, it's all about me. One of the things I always tell people if they come up and they say, Hey, I'm not a fan of the way the worship is or this or that. I always say, Boy, have you prayed about it? Do do two prayers. Pray for them to be led by the Lord, to have the worship that the Lord's leading them to do. And pray, number two, for our hearts to truly understand what worship is. Because that's what it is. I've sometimes in life got a very critical spirit about worship. I've had a very critical spirit about numerous things in church. And the Lord always says, James, it's not about you. Get over yourself. You know, hear about worship. You really see what it's supposed to be. It's about God and Him being on the throne. And I tell you this if you want a fun little study, verse 8, we sing that song out here at church. You know, we sing a lot of these songs. We sing verse 12, we sing that song, we sing verse 13, that song. It's so neat now when you see these words, a lot of the worship songs that we sing actually come out of the book of Revelation here. There's some wonderful worship courses in this book. And Jim Crager always used to joke, you want to study these out now, so when you get to heaven you already know the words. So kind of a neat little pre-test quiz there What's going on. So some neat stuff here. Remember, God's on the throne, it's all about Him, the worship is for Him, and you have some really neat symbolism of the heavenly scene that's going on, which takes us into chapter 5 next week, which builds us up into chapter... Chapter 6 is when the judgment starts here in the book of Revelation. Yeah, John. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it. I've seen those shirts too. You play with the audience of one. It's, it's all about the Lord, and um, and that's a good heart and attitude to have. Uh, it's hard. It's difficult because so often we have a, just with anything in life, it's, it's not even about worship, it's about everything in life. You know, we get done with something and you, you guys do it. Don't, don't tell me you don't. You know, Dawn and I will go do something and when we come home, you know, you have this little 30-second conversation we analyze everything. Well, what would you think of this? What would you think of that? And, you know, and it's, we have this tendency to judge everything and be critical of everything where sometimes we just got to stop and say, you know what, it's not about that. Just keep our eyes on the throne because that's all that matters. Anybody else have any final things I want to say before we close up? Alrighty, so let's close with a word of prayer and then we'll let you guys go. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just come to you now in the name of Jesus and we just ask for your blessing upon all things. Lord, we really want to this focus on you on the throne. You're all that matters. Lord, help that just to be you. To have a heart just to worship and praise you, just not on Wednesdays or Sundays, but every day of the week, Lord, for you. Give us that heart, Lord. And bless the worship out here. Lord, just bless it that it would truly be alive and active and spirit-led for you, Lord, and just that you would move mightily in that, Lord, and we know and trust you will. Lord, prepare our hearts for heaven, you being on the throne, and we want you to be on the throne of our lives now. There's something in our life right now that is not right and not in order with you. Get it off that, Lord, and let it truly be for you everything we do. We lift this up in your name, Amen. Real quick, on spot. We still need to set up some tables and chairs in the back. No.